Made a wrong turn once or twice. Dug my way out, blood and fire. Bad decisions, that's alright. Welcome to my silly life. Mistreated, this place misunderstood. South Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 7 of The Wrestler That Was, a show that, I hope, comprehensively examines the career of our favorite WWF wrestlers. And I, when I say our, I mean the collective hour, not the royal hour, because hopefully I'm not that arrogant. Before we get started, though, a big shout out uh, to everyone who not only continues to listen to these things, these sermons, if you will. Uh, but also takes time to get in touch with me. Know that it means the world to me. And when I'm sitting here wondering if I should keep doing them, it's it's you guys that make me keep doing. So I, I really do appreciate it. So just know that that's important, okay? If this is your first time listening, hopefully you can stand the sound of my voice uh, for the next little bit. But please, don't be shy. Get in touch, you know? Um, tell me what I'm doing wrong, uh, you know? I, whatever I can do to make this experience better for everyone, I am all in. Uh, also, please check out all the great content we have at the North-South Connection Podcast Network. We'd like to think we have something for like every fan. And while we do have some shows that are covering modern wrestling, almost everything else is evergreen content. So even if you're lapsed, you should be able to jump in and at least enjoy something. And I'm proud of all my peers here and look forward to the shows every single week. Please take a look at the whole catalog. Give something a chance. You know, You never know what you might like. Uh, this week, I'd like to shine a bit of a spotlight on New Gen on a Mission, a podcast which drops every other Tuesday on North-South. JP and Tim Slomka, they're diving deep uh, into the era from Bretton and Sean 1992 till Bretton and Sean 97, but they aren't just doing the pay-per-views. No, 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 no. They cover Raw, Superstars, uh, <laughs> everything in between. And I think it's an easy listening. Uh, and it's comfort food for someone like me who grew up on that era. Yeah, yes. Tim hates Diesel. Yes, they're both fucking marks for Bret Hart. But I've yet to listen to an episode that I haven't liked. Uh, they're just a little ways away from SummerSlam 93. Great time to jump in. New generation is really just solidly forming now. And truth be told, when I started, uh, when I heard about their project, I didn't know if I'd want to listen to guys talk about 1993 superstars. But it's actually my favorite part. I mean, the pay-per-views are already such mind experiences for everyone so superstars is a really fun deep dive and there's a lot of stuff we forget about and both guys are knowledgeable both guys are fun anyway give it a chance new gen on a mission every other tuesday on north south and as you know we continue to rank guys on this show we have 10 categories each giving a score out of 10 gives us a nice round score out of 100 the results so far have been interesting as for this week for as long as i can remember 
I always hated writing journals. Now, this is strange, as I now write 15,000-word essays about pro wrestlers in my spare time. But I hated journals. I hated them in theater school, where I had to talk about my feelings, right? I would instead just write 20 entries the night before I had to hand that shit in. What was worse, though, were grade school junior, uh, journals that I had to do in class. See, I was being watched. I had to fill these things in with someone over my shoulder. And in grade four, I, I mean, I was out of ideas. I mean, how many, how many times can I complain about seeing my mom naked? And what were those fucking brown things on her legs? So, instead of digging deep into my psychological past, I started making lists. And of course, I was obsessed with wrestling. So, on one particular day, I sat down and made a top 10 wrestler list. And lo and behold, I was surprised to see who my number one guy was. Mr. Perfect? How could that be? He was a piece of shit heel. And he'd aided the genius in beating Hulk Hogan. The genius! Lanny Poffo beat Hulk Hogan. At the time, I thought the world was ending. But there it was in my journal in ink. Mr. Perfect number one. My teacher said I had to write it in pencil, but fuck her. The smooth feel of ink, like that, that's, that's won me over forever. It was permanent, all right? And it was permanent now. Mr. Perfect was the best. And I thought about it, and, and it made perfect sense. You're going to have to apologize. To, I'm going to apologize to you for all the times you're going to hear the word perfect in this episode. But it just makes sense. This guy could do it all. He could do any sport. He could talk. He could wrestle. And he looked cool as fuck in all the colors of that shocking rainbow. So I was all in. Then he won the Intercontinental title. And I was elated. This guy had all the tools. So strap in. Mr. Perfect today. We're going to touch a guy who is almost as close to my heart as Sid. Hopefully this is going to be a good one. Category one. Narrative. So... This dude shows up in 1981, all decked out in a Speedo. And no, he was not from Europe. This man was from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he fought the likes of Buddy Rose, Greg Valentine, I almost said Gleg, Greg Valentine, and Killer Khan. Then he took his Speedo, threw out his dance belt forever, and went home. Home being the AWA. However, in 1988, he returned. But this time, something was different about him. It's as though his time abroad taught him how to do literally everything on earth. Now he could shoot basketball shots from everywhere. He could destroy anyone at darts. He could hustle Uncle Phil at billiards and even catch his own Hail Mary touchdown pass. The likes of Wade Boggs and Mike Medano were impressed. He had become, in a word, perfect. He also got better at wrestling. See, no one was ready for him. He was like the, the ancient day Asuka. One guy certainly not ready for him, living legend Ron Ravishad. Perhaps had his name been Ram Rod Ravishad, history would have told a different tale. And yes, this is the first, second, and last time you will ever hear that name in your life. Legend has it also that during a subsequent match with Jim Brunzel, Gorilla Monsoon began ejaculating bananas at the sheer majesty of the dropkicks being thrown. Mr. Perfect would go undefeated for over a year, defeating such important luminaries as Coco Beware, the Blue Blazer, the Red Rooster, and non-animals Bret Hart and Tito Santana. Then he met a man who could suck his own dick. 
Perfect was obviously impressed. This may have been the one thing that he could not do. He and the genius formed a formidable team. Genius did the poetry and the prancing, and Perfect complimented him with the ass-kicking and the penis flopping. They started messing with Hulk Hogan, and even went as far as stealing his championship belt and smashing it with a hammer. See? See? Finally, an appropriate use of a hammer in wrestling. You use it to destroy someone's prized possession rather than masking one's own crippling self-doubt or attempting to win the favor of the boss's daughter. Hogan and Perfect didn't really have any sort of definitive finish to their feud. Much like a veritable legion of ring rats, Hogan handed Mr. Perfect down to the open anus of Brutus Beefcake. Perfect would put his flawless record on the line against Brutus at WrestleMania 6. And after nearly a year and a half, the barber would pin an unconscious Perfect's shoulders to the mat and rape Lenny Poffo's head. A few weeks later, Hulk Hogan soundly beat Mr. Perfect just to make sure there were no credible challengers for the Ultimate Warrior. Perfect would then enter the tournament for the vacant Intercontinental title and, despite never winning a single match fairly, came out with the title after defeating Tito Santana in the final. Now, not only did he gain the Intercontinental title, but clearly... He did not want to support a victimized genius, so he dumped his ass in favor of the perfect manager, Bobby the Brain Heenan. It was a match made in heaven, as Bobby could catch Perfect's towel flawlessly. Perfect's quest to prove to everyone that he was in fact perfect, despite continual losses and rare pinfall wins, hit a pothole in the form of a living, breathing tornado. That in the fucking post. He would trade the Intercontinental title back with Kerry Von Erich, even enlisting the help of the Million Dollar Man to help regain his gold. Then, for some reason, his manager started fucking with a prison guard's mom. Tale as old as time, right? See, I'm unsure if Bobby broke her heart or was just being mean, but the big boss man was out for blood. Specifically, Rick Rude's sexy blood. But then Rude went and left the promotion and Perfect picked up the mantle and was chased down by the boss man. This culminated at WrestleMania 7, where Perfect defended his championship against the boss man, who was seconded by a very, very injured Andre the Giant. It's a testament to the gentlemanly nature of Mr. Perfect that he didn't perfect-plex those crutches right out of those gigantic hands. Bobby Heenan, though, had greater dreams of grandeur, though. He wanted to focus on being a broadcast journalist, it was now Perfect's turn to face rejection. He dumped Genius. Now Bobby Heenan foisted him on the coach. Now, I know it felt like they were together forever, but Bobby and Kurt were really only associates for about a year. And in that year, Bobby signed him up to fight an unknown tornado, got him in a fight with a hick prison guard, and then dumped his ass. Perfect, though, was crestfallen. How could the coach and his sweatsuits fill the brain-sized void in his heart. Without the guidance of Bobby the Brain, Perfect would not only lose his prestigious Intercontinental Championship to Bret Hart, but he would also be stripped completely of his clothing during the match. Now, I could make all sorts of metaphors about his dignity disappearing in that blue singlet, but I respect you, the listener, too much. His pride, literally stripped from him, Perfect took solace in the arms of another man, he became the executive consultant for Mr. Ric Flair upon his entry in the promotion. He would cheat for Flair, 
laugh for flair, and despite, despite declaring he wasn't that type of guy, would throw an I told you so out with reckless abandon. It was a good year for Perfect. He seemed to find true happiness helping out this fucking old asshole. Then, one faithful night in November 92 would change all of that. Randy Savage had been abandoned by the Ultimate Warrior and was in need of a partner. Savage would suggest on an episode of Primetime that Perfect slide into that slot. Slide in. Throughout the night, Bobby Heenan laughed it off. The very idea of Perfect returning to the ring was preposterous to him. And this bugged Perfect. Then Bobby would become more brazen and state that Perfect needed to follow Flair's orders. This was a bridge too far for Perfect, who accepted Savage's invitation and punctuated the whole thing by climaxing water all over Bobby's face. At the 1992 Survivor Series, Perfect would team up with Randy Savage to face the team of Ric Flair and Razor Ramon. There was a moment in which Perfect doubted. He even tried to leave the ringside area, showed major conflict. But in the end, he jumped up and down like he'd won the world title when he and Savage would win by disqualification. Mr. Perfect, you see, was growing up. And, like all young men, he felt the need to fight his father. He would destroy Ric Flair's chance at a Royal Rumble repeat, and the following night would banish him from the promotion. He was his own man now, free of Bobby, Flair, and Hepatitis. Perfect now, though, was loved by the people, and for some reason, Bobby Heenan would not let this stand. He brought in another man who was more beautiful, and perhaps more perfect. Bobby laughed at Perfect's return, but the laughter had to stop. You can't laugh at a guy, right? You can't laugh at a guy who actually ends up coming back. And it's actually physically impossible to laugh when you have a mouthful of Lex Luger. Bobby had brought the next level of superstar to take out Mr. Perfect. Luger and Perfect would fight at WrestleMania 9 when Perfect would be cheated out of victory. Without a partner, he was rudderless and never avenged said cheating. Instead, got the shit kicked out of him backstage by Shawn Michaels. The matchup between him and Michaels was promised to be one for the ages, and it was a match. Then he was such a great partner to Razor Ramon that he tagged himself out before the match even started, only to be replaced by Randy Savage at the Survivor Series. Being replaced by Savage no doubt awakened some salty tendencies in him as he dressed up like a zebra and fucked Lex Luger at WrestleMania 10. I guess I was wrong when he said he didn't get his revenge. WrestleMania 10, where it all begins again. Perfect would hide behind the microphone for the next couple of years until he began stealing women from Hunter Hearst Helmsley. If only he'd stolen his 2001 girlfriend. But alas, we humans don't deserve heaven. This would lead to a match with Triple H. Sorry, Hunter Hearst Helmsley. It's not his name yet. But instead he was attacked by a dinner cart. Then he helped Helmsley. It made no fucking sense. Perfect would disappear again before returning at the 2002 Royal Rumble. He would do little of note besides nearly cost everyone in the company their lives fighting Brock Lesnar at 30,000 feet. Perfect's story is one of a man bouncing from relationship to relationship. He was great on his own, but then he bounced from the genius to Bobby Heenan to the coach to Ric Flair to Randy Savage every time he got dumped too. Finally, he was on his own. And you'd think he'd be like this, this great swinging bachelor. But in all that time 
stifled in relationships, he forgot how to act like a living, breathing human being. The closest he would come to a, <laughs> would be a kind of regression to childhood when he declared that his dad to be stronger than his friend's dad. Then it's a spiral. He fucks Lex Luger, he fucks Mark Miro, almost kills everyone in the company. That being said, everything makes sense. A leads to B. He needed support, so he bounced around. When he didn't have support and people didn't appreciate him, he turned. When no one had his back, despite losses and being cheated, he lashed out. Kurt Hanning. Kurt the man Henning was the perfect man in every area except love. Seven on ten. But how good was Mr. Perfect as a face? And I see, I, at the time, I remember being happy when Mr. Perfect turned face. Finally, finally, everybody's going to be cheering the same guy as me. I was excited. Then I saw him work as a face. As a kid, I was like, oh, this isn't as fun, right? I didn't, but I couldn't analyze it, right? The first thing you'll realize, it's just not in his body. It's like watching an alien try to recreate authentic human life. I mean, look, he'll pump his fists, he'll smile. It's not natural. It's clearly not who he is. All the things that made him a great heel hurt him as a face. All the character stuff he does in the ring is based around telling his opponents off. He'd slap them. He'd twist their hair and throw them across the ring. Faces can't do that shit. Well, certainly not in 1993. The problem was, is there's no face replacement for these character quirks. The face slap, I mean, in theory, would become a handshake. No thanks, Bob Backlund. The telling off would turn into words of encouragement. No thanks, Bob Backlund. The hair twisting would become Samoan squats. Again, you can't take him and just make him Bob Backlund. And like, he, he didn't change his look either. Not that I want him to, but that look was so um, iconic for heel Mr. Perfect. Nothing changed except... Kurt Henning suddenly became a dad. And I don't mean an actual father. I mean, for fuck's sake, you know Curtis Axel was born in 1979? That was shocking to me. Late bloomer. I just mean, he became a dad in a way like, like my wife doesn't laugh at my jokes anymore, you know? He was the coolest, like, character I'd ever seen. And he wasn't just, he wasn't cool anymore. And that made me sad. And at the time, I didn't know why. But I think now, age, hindsight, getting older, I think part of the problem is his character. Mr. Perfect just isn't adaptable as a face. No, no one wants you to cheer for a guy whose whole MO is that he's better than you. I mean, you're not going to get behind someone like that. And the problem is you can't make him more humble. No one's going to cheer Mr. Adequate. No. So it's not like he can change character. And Hennig sounds like an insect too, so that's dead. If only it was Henning. Anyway, but if you're gonna, if you are a face, let's 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 put all that aside. Let's imagine we live in a world where none of that matters. You are a face, and you call yourself Mister Perfect. You might want to actually win some matches. So when he turns like the Survivor Series 1992, he wins a match by DQ. He loses at the Royal Rumble. He pins Flair to put him out of the promotion. That's good. Loses to Luger at WrestleMania. Wins by DQ over Mr. Hughes. Loses to Bret Hart at King of the Ring. Loses by Countout at SummerSlam. Look, I'm not saying the dude has to win all his matches, but if a face is going to call himself Mr. Perfect, he's got to win 
decisively more than one time out of seven big matches. And this might be the first time that I noticed they were pushing a guy as a face who doesn't really fit the bill at all. There's just some people who are taught not to like from a very young age, and the boastful are among that group. That's why a character like the show-off, Dolph Ziggler, can never work as a face. As kids, we're told not to show off, right? We're told not to tell everybody we know everything. We're told not to act like we're perfect. These qualities make you annoying to be around. But the results are there. Like he was a face for less than a year. And I think it might be the worst run of his career, despite having a very good match in there. Three out of 10 for face work. The flip side of that coin, though, is heel work. And this is where a character named Mr. Perfect thrives. Obviously, as I, as I just mentioned, we're conditioned to hate a guy who was better than us at everything. And yes, he probably doctored the footage of him catching his own touchdown. He did, but as a kid, he definitely doctored that footage of him catching his own touchdown pass to rub it in our faces. But Perfect was an incredible douche heel. And his alliances with other known assholes only increased the ire of the fans. Who'd want to hang out with the genius? Really? Imagine how many times you have to leave that locker room. His entire persona, from the arrogant attitude to the flashy colors, made you want to see him get humbled by his opponents. Oh, and on top of that, Perfect's work in the ring was perfect for a heel. It wasn't enough to beat you and hook you in the perfect plex. Now, Perfect had to give you a lecture while he was doing it. He had to get in your face in the corner, grab you by your two cheeks, paintbrushing you across the face. See, it's, it really is the flip side of the coin. They're all impeccable heel mannerisms. Mannerisms, again, that he didn't replace as a face. There's also something to be said. For Perfect delivering little things that reinforce the idea that he may, in fact, be perfect. Something as silly as a towel toss over the head, which is seamlessly caught by Bobby Heenan. The gum spit and whack into the crowd. I mean, the best example is all that freaky pencil shit he does as a commentator. Like, when you saw him do this stuff, you couldn't help but think, fuck this guy, man. In retrospect, I think it makes him look cool. But at the time, it was just one more thing that he had over everybody else. Eight on ten for heel work. So let's rank his characters, shall we? I think his worst character, I think it's his face run from Survivor Series 92 to Survivor Series 93. Just didn't work. And he was positioned, I think, in 92 in a position where he could have been the number one face in the company. But by mid-year 93, he's passed by Bret Hart, Razor Ramon, Savage, maybe even the 123 Kid. Like You just got to connect with your body, you lanky fuck. Number two. Weird tweener, 2002 Mr. Perfect. I feel like he came back as a heel, but he got cheered. It's like he fit. He could be a heel in this era and still be a face. He didn't have to act like a goof. It was good. It worked. Number one, obviously, heel Mr. Perfect. And I think he's one of the best and most memorable heels of the late 80s and 90s. His look was unique, and he was a staple of the promotion. For a while, you believe he could have been the world champion as a heel. Then the brother Barbers murdered him, but whatever. That's just what happened to heels then. In-ring work. I think all the reputation that Kurt Henning still maintains is because of the smoothness and fluidity of his in-ring work. Everything always looked good. 
There was just a great snap to everything he did. His punches were on point. They looked like they never missed. His chops were as solid as anyone in the business. In fact, as a face, I saw him chop a child in a locker room for no discernible reason. (laughs) Wonder why I didn't get over, right? Now, when I watch his matches now, I don't see him doing a lot of different things in the matches, but everything he did do, he did extremely well. His dropkick. Oh, his dropkick was so great. Like, he's one of the few guys who was able to get both feet up into the air and into the face. Like, a guy like Tito threw a really nice dropkick. But I always imagined the feet were hitting the chest. I'm sure it hurt. But Perfect looked like he's chopping your, like, dropkicking your face off. And there's also a lot of great torque to all his holds. He wrenched, wrenched the neck on a reverse chin lock. No laying around for Kurt. He also applied the sleeper. I didn't realize how much he did this until this project. He applied the sleeper in a really interesting way. It's like Brutus Beefcake would throw you into the ropes, and he looked really relaxed as you slid into his arms, you know, into, into the sleeper, right? You know, you'd sway away and fall asleep. Roddy Piper, by contrast, it was always like a, a, a surprise. He was sneaking up on you and putting you in the sleeper. With Perfect, it looked like a fight. Like, it's usually the guy running at him. He'd duck, jump around on his back. Sometimes the momentum was such that it looked like he's going to swing all the way around and fall off. Anyway, and I also appreciated the little moves, like when the opponent's sitting on the mat, perfect runs and flips a neck, I don't know if it's a neck breaker, but snaps his face to the mat. Super simplistic, but it made him look about a million times more athletic as a consequence. You can't talk about perfect's um, work without talking about how the perfect plex was also a killer finisher. And I'm, I realize, I realize we're not uh, reinventing the wheel here, but I love that the dude had a finish that wasn't a knockout blow. Everybody's knocking everybody out, right? It was a trap. A trap that you were not getting out of if Perfect had the fingers locked. To this day, I lock my fingers on everything. I don't want to be chastised by Gorilla and Jesse. I'm sorry, Gorilla. If I missed it, just let me know, all right? But the Perfect Plex added to the aura. No one kicked out of that hold. Or at least I thought so, And again, until I did this project and watched a bunch of matches. <laughs> It looked like it required a tremendous amount of strength to pull off too. And that bridge always looked fantastic. I just think, you know, I don't know if a leg drop really fits Hulk Hogan, you know? Um, You know, there's a lot of moves that I don't, that they're cool or whatever, but I don't know if they necessarily fit the character, right? But this was a wrestler's finish. And Perfect was the ultimate wrestler at the time. This was all coupled with Perfect's just incredible selling. He was fantastic at, at making his body go limp during a beating. I mean, he'd bounce his way into an early grave, right? Like, and I, that wasn't a pun that he died early. I'm talking about like, it looked like he was dying in the ring, but I guess it works as that too, if you have a dark sense of humor. He flies across the ring with hip tosses. Like when he gets smashed into the post, he flips backwards. I mean, it's all incredible. Almost as credible and incredible as his head being a goddamn magnet for that ring post. I, what, I think my favorite bit of perfect selling is uh, when he, he does this sequence where he's on the ropes with his hand on the ropes and someone would kick the legs out from under him. Oh, he was so good at flipping all the way around back on his legs. Gorilla would even now and again properly use the term 360 when describing this. It's such a great spot. He uses it in almost every match and I never got bored of it. So I think work is a strong category for him. I'm going to go 7 out of 10. 
which ranks him among the best we've seen in the project so far. Match quality. So again, to get this a score out of 10, what I do is I take all his pay-per-view matches that I've watched and rated, all the big matches, say Saturday Night's Main Event or um, any MSGs or house shows I watched of him, uh, average the star ranking and multiply by two. So his average is 6.25. And this is the highest of guys we've seen so far. And I'm going to say at this point, besides the face stuff, Perfect's really on his way to claiming the number one spot in this list because he's, he's just dominating. And I guess in many ways, it's no surprise. I mean, Henning was always known for being a great worker. 6.25 is a really good average. But I think there's a little disappointment here. And it's a range. It's two stars to four and a quarter. His worst match is two stars. His best is four and a quarter. I'm happy I have the four and a quarter match. But it feels like a guy of this immense talent should have some higher highs. And higher highs against varied opponents. All right, let's deal with the five bottom matches first. Fifth worst match. Madison Square Garden. 1990 January against Hulk Hogan. I think this is my single greatest disappointment with Mr. Perfect and maybe my biggest disappointment for anything I've watched for this project. When I think of all the great wrestlers who have had incredible matches with Hogan and then to see Mr. Perfect not really excel really is kind of a surprising mark against the man. He was an incredible worker, right? So why can't he have the, the same type of quality match as, say, Randy Savage or Gasp, an Ultimate Warrior? Anyway, to the match. Hillbilly Jim on commentary. <laughs> you should watch it just for him. Uh, starts with a like an insane rant about how Hulkamania can cure the sick. I feel like if that were true, Alex Jones would be hawking it during commercial breaks. Uh, it's worked before and, uh, you know, you get shaken and uh, tear your shirt and everybody will be happy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Hillbilly Jim's like, well, it's worked before. It's proven, declares Hillbilly Jim. I don't know what's going on. The match, though, between Perfect and Hogan does have a big-time feel because at this point, Perfect is a really credible challenger, I think. Uh, he's yet to be defeated by Brutus Beefcake and humbled by Hogan himself on Saturday Night's main event. A theme that I don't think gets uh, talked about enough is Perfect's alarming refusal to wear a dance belt. For those of you who don't know what a dance belt is, it's what flattens your, your penis when you're wearing tights. And... I mean, he's just all the way out there. And it's somewhat shocking to how big perfect is. I'm not talking about the penis anymore. Uh, it, it's shocking to how big perfect is. Because he doesn't look like much smaller than Hogan. And he's about a thousand times more agile. And then Hillbilly Jim is now Hulk Hogan is the master of perfection. Man, like, Jesus. Hogan, of course, starts running through not only Mr. Perfect, but the genius at ringside as well. And I love how the genius always wears light blue wrestling trunks under his robe. He must have been fucking comfortable out there. Hulk is just brutalizing the genius. Mr. Perfect's penis is brutalizing my eyes. Like, like at least if it were in the black section of the tights, it would be less obvious. But it's orange and you can't unsee it. Perfect is eating such a beating at the hands of Hogan. And then finally, Hogan puts his head down and gets kicked in the face and Perfect takes over. With very slow stomps. The match now slows to a crawl as Hogan sells as though Perfect has run him over with a car. 
Hogan throws perfect into his mortal enemy, the post. All this while, Gorilla calls the genius a butterfly. It's the first time I've ever heard the word butterfly used as a slur. Probably the last as well. And now we go for a very exciting sleeper hold. Man, and it just kind of morphs into a really long reverse chin lock hold from Perfect. Like, it'd be nice if, you know, this match had, I don't know, excitement or momentum or nudity. Perfect takes back over. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Hogan takes back over. And uh, Perfect's just flip-flopping all over the place. Perfect hits the Perfect Plex. Hogan kicks right out. I guess Bret Hart never saw this match when he declared in his book he was the only one ever allowed to do that. They fight to the outside. Perfect grabs a very padded chair and they fight over the chair and they struggle to get back in the ring. And then Hogan tries to enter and Perfect just fucking wallops him with something. Then shoves the foreign object back into his tights, but it's right next to his penis. And now it looks like he needs two fucking dance belts. Imagine having to explain to someone how you have a second penis growing out of your tights. No, it's, it's not a second penis. It's... It's a foreign object. Behold, it's fine. What are we doing? And then Hogan, of course, can't be counted out. So instead comes back into the ring. He bops the ref. Hits Perfect with the foreign object. Hogan has Perfect beat, of course. But the ref has awarded the match to Perfect by disqualification. I feel like this is just such a wasted opportunity here. I'm at two and three quarter stars. Which again, is not a bad match. But man, this could have been special. Fourth worst match, WrestleMania 6, Brutus the Barber Beefcake. <laughs> I think it's funny that like the hottest run of Perfect's career is like all his worst matches. Well, not all. We'll get to the worst. Don't worry. Uh, I love that Lanny Poffo in this one is Ricardo Rodriguez 20 years earlier. Perfect all decked out in yellow. And Gorilla's like, well, there's a lot of scores to settle in this one. Whatever. Uh, never let it be said to the crowd doesn't love the Barber. The crowd is, Pop is crazy. And this is despite the pink candy cane tights. What on earth are they going for with this look of beefcake? There is no way you would trust this man cutting your hair once you've seen what he's done to that jacket. Jesse's got a great rant early about how he's got Sean Connery's hair, Paul Newman's eyes, and Kirk Douglas's chin. And this will guarantee his success in Hollywood. And I, I suppose Brutus thinks he's classing up his outfit with the bow tie. But really... I think it's just making it more likely he's going to take his pants off. Great quotes from the commentators throughout. Jesse's like, it's wrestling, not fighting with hedge clippers. <laughs> awesome line. Then Gorilla kills me dead. He kills me dead, complimenting Brutus's gear. He goes, it looks like a hand grenade went off in his pocket. I like that joke because it's the exact kind of quote that would pop my dad too. Right off the bat, they attack each other and, you know... Perfect and Brutus, that is, not Gorilla and Jesse. Uh, and it's clunky as fuck. And they both stop and don't know what to do for a second or two. We get going. Some better selling from Perfect. Beefcake is destroying him with a kick to the face. Then, as Gorilla is, Gorilla's like, Perfect's making some uncharacteristic mistakes, Brutus makes a characteristic mistake and doesn't duck on a punch. So Perfect has to loop the punch over his head. I guess they just really, really wanted to do that atomic drop spot. Horrible. Horrible. Horrible strutting from Beefcake follows. As a child, I thought his strut was like the coolest thing in the world. In fact, one day, I found out my mom was babysitting a girl. That, I don't know. I guess I liked her. And I strutted my ass to the backyard. Then, one day, my mom babysat her at her house. And I realized they were millionaires. And the class divide never felt so large. Weird moment. As Perfect sells a clothesline by jumping straight up instead of going with the momentum of the move. 
It makes about as much sense as Oswald killing Kennedy on his own. Shot with the scroll, which Jesse declares perfect as a sneak and a snake and a smart one. Fantastic alliteration from the body, who then slides into an argument about how Poffo can't be an idiot because he's a genius. WrestleMania 6, man, the commentators are awesome. It's a shame they're kind of overshadowing the match, and I, but I don't think it's on the commentators. I think the match is just bland. Brutus then sells a, a neck snap by just bouncing up and down on his presumably bo- broken neck. And then I, I love this moment in the commentary where Jesse chastises Gorilla for not knowing the difference between a 360-degree turn and a 180-degree turn. And quite frankly, it's about time someone took Monsoon to task for this. Perfect hits some sweet chops. Brutus is on his knees. And I, I love, I, I'll never not love the little arrogant touches Perfect adds to his matches. It's like Brutus is on his knees getting chopped. And he's not falling, so Perfect puts his foot on his face and just shoves him down to the match. I I love it. Fantastic knee lift to the face by Perfect. And here comes the lecture. Brutus is on his knees. Perfect is paintbrushing him and slapping him around. Perfect then just grabs the side of Brutus' head and screams in his face. I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I always wondered what those screams were, like, kayfabe-wise. Like... Like, it's perfect being like, you cut my dad's hair, and now he's fucking men. Brutus begs on the leg. Uh, Perfect grabs, but then kind of flips Perfect into a slingshot right into the post. Great fall from Perfect, because he hits the post, and it really looks like he gets knocked out. His leg kind of collapses in the ropes. Brutus just drags him in and pins him. See, I thought this was a good match for the most part. With just a few too many clear botches. Some at two and three quarters. I do love that the match ended on a fluky thing. I think in hindsight, it was an awful decision to take away Perfect's ring street here. But the crowd goes crazy for the win. I mean, if you're going with Perfect as a top heel the rest of the year, why not keep him strong? But I guess they're not. Perfect would be jobbing to a sailboat within three months. So we don't need to keep him strong. I also really like that Brutus starts beating up the genius all while Brutus's music is still playing, and Perfect just fucks off. He's not doing it. And Jesse then ends with a fun shoot. He goes, Since when do you and the people dictate what happens in the World Wrestling Federation? Very uh, clairvoyant of you, Jesse. Third worst match. From Saturday night's main event, December 1988, versus Coco Beware. Perfect, clearly, Clearly, just wants that fucking bird out of the ring. Henning is still in the the trunks. I hate it. Uh, They lock up, and Frankie, Frankie's going crazy on the outside. He's like squawk, and it's I never noticed this before. Maybe it's just this night squawking and flapping his arms, and it made me think. Imagine how scared these poor animals were. They're dragged out to the ring every night. So many people. They got to watch the match. What if they don't like wrestling? Anybody ask them? Also, I always assumed that Frankie was a boy. Then I met a girl named Frankie, and it blew my fucking mind. Nice sequences of arm drags between the two. Hillbilly Jim is, of course, on commentary again. Talks about how the crowd is quiet because they're expecting greatness or some bullshit. Frankie cries bullshit on that. Uh, He yells so loudly, like Frankie is freaking out so much that the announcers have to mention that he, or she, I guess, is making noise. Uh, Perfect with a go-behind, gets Coco down and then walks over his back. But then Perfect gets knocked to the outside right next to Frankie. And now, now, now the bird 
is quiet. After all the yelling, Mr. Perfect's there. Now he's quiet. I think that Frankie is contemplating taking one of Mr. Perfect's eyes. Coco takes control, arm drags, chops. Great huge sell from Perfect going nearly completely vertical on a flip. Coco has the crowd pumping, so he slows everything down with an extended arm bar. Then a great sequence with like a million body slams and a bunch of chops. Crowd is going crazy, right? Coco suplexes Perfect into the ring. Of course, he doesn't do his Ghostbuster pile driver. That would make too much sense. Perfect then goes in the corner, and Coco takes like about three minutes to walk over to the corner and set him up for a splash. Fuck, even Helen Keller, even fucking she knew that Mr. Perfect was moving on that one. And don't get on me for bringing up Helen Keller, okay? I was in a production of The Miracle Worker, and I didn't even play the fucking blind chick. Nice spot, too, that pops Lord Alfred Hayes. Coco's kind of on the apron, getting punched, and he hangs on with one hand, but then Perfect snaps the ropes out of his hand so he falls. And Lord Al, like, laughs, like, audibly. There's spurs to this thing. But overall, the pace is just too slow. And this is for two guys that can really move. It's like four minutes now of Coco just trying to get into the ring. Coco then starts with a boxing sequence. Perfect's legs are rubber. He eats an uppercut and flies into the air. At least this time he followed the momentum of the blow. And then Coco dances around like a bird. Uh, this gives Perfect the time to recover and level Coco with knees to the gut and a splash. The bird dance really cost him. And then Perfect just grabbed Coco. Perfect flex finished. Again, like the beefcake match, this should be good. But it's got a big flaw. Like, so, you know, the perfect the beefcake match, the flaw was the botches, right? In this one, it's the pace. Two and three quarters. So again, though, we're not going super low. Second worst match. Madison Square Garden, October 1989 versus Superfly, Jimmy Snuka. And I don't know about you, but when I see Jimmy Snuka in the ring, it kind of looks like he speaks and understands English. Sweet black singlet from Perfect with fluorescent green and pink on the back. Mullet is completely out of control. And Gorilla makes a completely unsubstantiated claim that he's seen many guys lose matches on account of gum. Perfect, of course, starts by telling him off. I feel Snooka probably deserves this stern talking to. Big slap to the face of Snooka and Perfect bails. And the story of this one seems to be every time Perfect can, he cheap-sought Snooka in the face. Like he's trying to make him lose his cool. Snooka very slowly works the throat. Everything is on the throat. The chops, everything. Hillbilly Jim explains this is slipping. And says, well, you know, Jimmy Snooka's not perfect. Bites him in the ass, though, as Snooker runs it perfect and gets snake-eyed right over the top rope. The referee, too, with the count-out here when, when he's outside the ring, is being completely unreasonable. He's, he's counting normally. One, two, three. It's like real human counting. Has he never seen a wrestling match? One! He didn't go to wrestling uh, referee school. Uh, <laughs> all the offense in this has been throat-based. I guess it's fitting for a Jimmy Snuka match. Uh, Perfect slows things down with a neck wrench. And then Perfect kind of stupidly starts working the head. I guess he's never watched wrestling either. And Snuka, like, I don't know what you call it, super flies up. He takes control. Perfect's begging off. 
Nice spot, though, as Snooker works smashing his head into all three turnbuckles in the corner, the top, the middle, the bottom. Great, great near fall as Perfect rolls through a cross body, but Snooker escapes. Then Jimmy just puts his head down. Perfect snaps the Perfect Plex for the win. I, look, I do like I do like that Perfect kind of caught, he could catch the move out of nowhere. And because the move is a trap, Snooker couldn't escape. Very different than the usual knockout finisher. I... Look, I had this at two and a half. I'll probably bump it up into two and three quarters. I mean, it's almost good. It's just slow, and Snuka really sucks. Like, I know people have high opinions of him, and I think, like, his his early 80s work is really cool, but I think it's because he's really different, too. But his post-89 stuff is pretty brutal. Anyway, that'll be on the Snuka episode. We talk about death, murder, you know, fun stuff. Speaking of fun stuff, Mr. Perfect's worst match in the WWF, King of the Ring, 1993, Bret Hart, no, imagine, uh, against Mr. Hughes. Hughes starting in the ring already, not a great sign. He's got the urn, I guess he's, there's a thing on Raw or Superstars, he's fighting The Undertaker. Perfect comes out swinging the towel in the air like he's John Cena, all decked out in black with blue on the back. Crowd, though, is really into Perfect, and he's doing a great job pumping them up. Uh, then Bobby draws like a penis on Perfect's face for the brain scan. And then he he's, he's making some sort of weird baseball metaphor. Mr. Hughes is wearing slacks, suspenders, sunglasses to wrestle. He's got a watch on too. The story is Perfect Speed versus Hughes Power. Perfect's doing a great job selling the power of Hughes. Like he gets spaghetti legged and wobbles down. It's really good stuff. It's way too early though in the match for a rest hold. And Hughes grabs one two minutes in. Hughes hits a big boot, and Savage declares that a home run. Like, fuck, Randy, you played baseball, for Christ's sake. Back to the rest hold, and the match is already boring. It's boring, and then they do an inset interview with Bret Hart about who he'd rather fight, and he's like, well, you know, it's going to be endurance uh, against strength, and I'm going to talk about endurance, and he's just droning on and on about endurance. Poor Perfect, just can't, he just can't get the face mannerisms. He starts to win the match, and he's like jumping and flipping around like a child. At one point, he looked like he was playing jump rope without the rope. Like, imagine pantomiming jump rope. Hughes then forgets that he's in a tournament and uh, needs to win, and just hits Perfect in the face with the urn. So Perfect wins by DQ. He can't beat Mr. Hughes? Ugh. Slow match, terrible finish, two stars. So, when you're dealing with Perfect's bad... It's not like anything's really that bad. There's no 30-minute ladder match with Hunter Hearst Helmsley. And thank fuck he left in 1986. We would have gotten that. So it's not bad. It's just disappointing or being in there with uninspired wrestlers. But I say that. When I say it's disappointing, though, was Perfect uninspired? Could he not get up to fight Hogan or Coco? These are actually good workers. But that might be the story of Mr. Perfect. All the tools, but can't seem to put it all together for great matches. I mean, the Hogan one is really egregious. Maybe he wishes he had it back. From heaven. Top five matches. The first one's a bit of a uh, little hidden gem that time forgot. From the Superstars and Stripes Forever special, he fights Shawn Michaels. And it's kind of amazing what expectations can do. See, their SummerSlam match in 93 is lauded as something that was going to be an all-time great beforehand. And it was good. Everyone got mad. This has zero expectations and zero build. Completely different story. 
Perfect, of course, was uh, warming up for the big boss man at WrestleMania 7, whereas Michaels was warming up to face the Barbarian and Haku. And look, I don't know about you, I'd rather be raped in prison by Ray Trailer than fight the faces of fear. They, spell, they also spell Shawn Michaels' name uh, S-E-A-N uh, on the graphic. Am I the only one who originally read that as a child as seen? Trash talk starts early as Michaels eats an elbow to the face. I love the strategy from Perfect. And this is a cool little adaptation. Michaels is quicker, so he starts trying to box and power him. Sean, of course, puts his hands up like, like he's never been in a fight before, like way too close to his face. Like think the opposite of Miz's dad. Michaels gets the better of the fisticuffs to crushes perfect with a jump over uh, the ropes onto the floor. And uh, Michaels takes a, a drop on the rail on the outside. And here comes Marty to console him. Like, do we need Marty Jannetty out here consoling Shawn Michaels in this match? Just let the man fight, you daughter fucking maniac. And we get a commercial break. So I guess we needed time to kill. Maybe that's why I came out. <laughs> I'm guessing Marty threw him in the ring because we come back to Perfect just destroying Shawn Michaels in the ring. Uh, Perfect's dropkick, spectacular. I think it's cool too to see Shawn working out all his single stuff here. The flare flop in the corner, like the, the suit when he flips over, getting knocked off the apron, having his head bounced off the ground like Mr. Perfect was a fucking Marine. Just cool to see it all develop, you know? It's all punches for Perfect till he finally hits the flipping neckbreaker. The women in the crowd are all in on Shawn. And Shawn is really great here, working from underneath. Perfect with the sleeper. And I'd forgotten how often he used that as a move. Michaels then starts to uh, compete with Perfect to see who can sell the highest as Perfect blasts him with the knee to the face. And both guys are now just jumping all over the place. Perfect slaps Janetti. Janetti tries to get involved. And this prompts Heenan to leave the broadcast booth and head to ringside. Look, I think he was looking for any excuse in the world to stop calling matches with Vince, but whatever. Perfect's nuts get pulled into the post, and this gets, like, wide, open-mouth reactions from everyone involved. Perfect starts taking the kicks that completely take his legs out from under him. He's flipping all the way around. Crowd is losing it, by the way. And that's kind of the brilliance of Perfect. And I guess Sean here, too, is when you start this match, no one's believing that Sean can beat him. And now we're starting to believe, right? I think that's really neat. Um, Michaels climbs the ropes to finish. Perfect. But Heenan gets involved. This prompts the boss man to come out and just beat up Henning out of nowhere. I mean, come on for a DQ. We can't give Perfect a win against a tag team worker like Shawn Michaels. Perfect gets chased off by the three faces. Look, this is a good match, right? I like it. Again, it's a nice little hidden gem. I have it at three and a quarter, which is Perfect's, I don't know, fifth best match. For contrast, Shawn Michaels' fifth best match is probably four and three quarters. In fact, I can promise you it is. At least in my view, anyway. Anyway, though, this match was a ton of fun. And I thought they did a really great job of making you believe that Sean could pull this one out. Fourth best match. Monday Night Raw, January 1993. Loser Leaves Town versus Ric Flair. This is the culmination of their classic pairing. And it all leads to this faithful Monday night a few weeks after my 13th birthday. Of course, Ric Flair wearing red. Big shock. Perfect's towel toss isn't the same without some asshole manager catching it too. But this is such a cool pairing for a match. And it would have seemed crazy a year ago that these guys would be fighting each other in a career match. I mean, they were so happy at that Rumble celebration. Perfect with the very heroic face slap to start. Then he shuffles around the ring in a manner in which Vince 
I mean, Vince has got some fucking big balls. He compares this to Muhammad Ali. Perfect's just struggling with the face celebrations. Kurt lights him up with chops. We get a flare flop early. Rob Bartlett doesn't know what to make of it, so he stays silent for almost all of the match. Perfect then takes the strap down. You know he means business. Great sell from Flair. As he walks to the corner, like, he walks out of the corner, and Perfect just jabs him. <laughs> he goes right down. Uh, once again, Perfect prances around the ring. Flair throws Perfect out and then tries to hit him with, like, a dining room chair. Like, that would have been an interesting contact to fake. Perfect gets tossed into the corner, flips over backwards. And I think this was a mistake, as you can really see him, like, desperately trying to hang on. The ref even goes and checks on him. And I, I've seen this match four or five times. And this spot still looks brutal and actually gets, a, like, a reaction out of me. I'm always like, oh, Flair with a ton, a ton of great punches. And Perfect is busted open. Must have been hard way. <laughs> I love Bobby at this point. He goes, it's like life. You could do anything you want until you get caught. Fuck, such amazing advice from the brain. Perfect then hits Flair with that weird punch where he hits like the inside of his wrist. Billy Gunn was probably taking notes backstage. Perfect tries with a black a backslide and Bobby's losing it on commentary, panicking. Flair is on the apron. Perfect nails him with a chop. Then Perfect like, like grabs him and with like an awesome aggressiveness suplexes him back into the ring. I love it. Like it looked like he was legit pissed. The Flair didn't fall to the floor, so he's like, fuck it, I'm going to suplex him. And it looked like he did all the work, too. Flair gets a sleeper, <laughs> and, like, Perfect drops his hands, and it drops twice, but on the third one, he holds it up. And Bobby's like, that's not fair! That rule shouldn't exist! <laughs> Perfect tries to do his jumping sleeper, but Flair falls to the ground. But I don't mind, because they kind of shift into a reverse chin lock. I love that they turn the mistake into something interesting. That's always my favorite thing. Flair is eventually able to suplex his way out. Nice spot. Flair gets perfect in figure four. And there's a guy in a shirt and a tie on the hard camera side losing his fucking mind. Uh, if you go back and watch and you see him, you'll never unsee it. I'm sure if I watch this again, I'm only going to be watching him from the start. Flair goes to the top rope. You know what's about to happen. And he gets tossed like halfway across the ring. Flair grabs knuckles from the knee pad and crushes perfect. Perfect gets his foot on the ropes, saves his career. But Heenan on commentary is all smiles. Flair works the cut on Perfect's head, short punches. Flair chops Perfect, who's watched some sting matches because he just takes the chops and gets angry. Now Perfect is shaking and hitting himself in the head. Then he almost does a Tatanka dance. I don't know what he's doing with his body. You're not Tatanka. Flair gets whipped into the corner. He flips out, runs to the other corner, and gets hit with a dragon punch by Mr. Perfect for a very close two. Look, you have to survive his dragon punch to stand a chance. Pace picks back up. Flair whips him into the ropes, puts his head down, caught in the perfect plex, cannot escape. One, two, three. Flair's done. I mean, this might be the, the first time in years that Perfect pins someone on TV or pay-per-view. Someone of consequence, anyway. I like this much better than my first watch. I had it at three and a half. I'm going to bump it to three and three quarters. Not quite the classic that it sometimes gets billed as, but very, very good. I, I, I really enjoyed it this run. Third best match. June 1990, Saturday Night's Main Event versus Tito Santana. And the June 90 Saturday Night's Main Event is a strange show. Uh, Rick Rude is challenging the Ultimate Warrior a month before SummerSlam. Uh, we get a repeat of Eternal Final here that nobody cared about, right? Nobody cared about the tournament at the time. 
the match is also hidden a bunch, like within a bunch of safari, safari shoots. There's a world title match, a Hulk Hogan return from the dead, whatever. Santana, though, is a house of fire from the start. Awesome arm drags, great drop kick, perfect reeling. Tito then makes the classic mistake. We've talked about putting his head down. Perfect makes him pay. And I think Tito is kind of a low-key master of getting the crowd to bite on false comebacks. A couple of punches and kicks, they go nuts. Then Perfect beats him down again. Perfect with a neck wrench. Tito works his way back up, punches Perfect, uh, but he falls into the ref's knee. And I love this ref bump. Like, it's better than the traditional one. Hebner's kind of writhing in pain as Tito gets Perfect in the figure four. This was after two of the insane leg kicks, so like, imagine how hurt Perfect is. Tito then hits the flying forearm, but the ref is too far away. Takes a while, but Hebner crawls over very close to. Crowd losing it, right? Tito has him beat again. Flying clothesline. Hebner's hurt. Gets over there. Another close to. And, you know, Hebner's hurt. So Jesse's like, what a gallant. What a gallant effort on the part of the official. And then Santana's had enough. So he calls for another ref as we go to a break. While Tito was dealing with all the bullshit with the officials, Perfect waited to hit him with like a cheap punch. Santana, though, gets another great near fall off the high cross body. Crowd is going insane for Tito, despite none of them being alive the last time he won anything of consequence. And I love how, as the match goes on, both guys are getting more desperate, right? Like, Perfect is busting out a crescent kick, uh, wringing his knees, you know, um, with his neck. Like He's got his neck on his knees and wringing it. Great sell to the outside as Perfect flips off a Tito chop. Mr. Perfect also gets thrown across the ring and lands crotch on the post. There's a lot of similar spots in all of his matches. Two atomic drops from Tito. The last one gets a leap out of Mr. Perfect. Crowd is going insane for all of it. Close to again. Tito puts his head down. Almost gets Perfect Plex, though. They roll through a small package until Perfect rolls him over. Three count. Fuck it. This is four stars. I loved it. It's so, so good. It's just disconcerting that there aren't more matches like this throughout Perfect's career. It's a rare gem instead of a usual occurrence. But then, maybe this wasn't a Mr. Perfect match. Maybe this was Mr. Perfect working a Tito Santana match. Either way, this was great. Second best Mr. Perfect match from Survivor's... No, from SummerSlam 1991. Defending the Intercontinental title against Bret Hart. And if you listen to Bret Hart tell this story, this is the culmination of like... 50 backstage meetings with Vince where he was promised something and then told he was respected above everybody else. Also, he was getting more fan mail than Hulk Hogan and cheating on that bitch Julie on a nightly basis. The coach is here with his fucking whistle. This should have set off all kinds of alarm bells. I like there's a quick little promo off the start about Perfect being like, I'm perfect, but Brett is excellent. Quick work. I like it. Massive booze for Perfect on the entrance. Also, why wouldn't they give the coach a last name? Uh, Led towards the ring by Coach. Coach what? Coach Coos? Coach catches the towel with two hands, which sucks. Where's the flair of Bobby Heenan? Also, Coach is in like an all-white sweatsuit. It's awful. I wish he was like... I wish Coach was like 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 a baseball coach where he wore his guy's uniform, like perfect singlet. He could wear that to the ring. Why do they do that in baseball? Can anyone, it's the only sport, right? Do the managers not deserve dignity as well? No, 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 Tony La Russa. Stuff your 77-year-old ass into those tight pants. 
I don't care if the belt is hurting your stomach. I don't care. I love the little spin Mr. Perfect does when Bret Hart hip tosses him to the ground. It's like a spin on his ass. It's really good. Crowd is completely buying. It's great about Perfect. I will say this. They bite into all the near falls. And I think it makes sense uh, to this point because the Intercontinental Championship at SummerSlam has changed hands every uh, every SummerSlam to this point. Oddly enough, uh, it's Perfect and Sean that break that streak in 1993. Bobby Heenan is shitting all over Stu, Helen, and Roddy's Pipers. Uh, excuse me, Roddy Piper's parents. He says at one point, he goes, you know, Piper used to come home from school and find out that his parents had moved. This elicits a huge, will you stop, and the threat of being taken out of there. Both guys just say, fuck it, start pulling the hair. This is tough, according to Bobby, because Brett has oil slicks all over his hair. Brett is doing a great job hitting near falls and grounding the match uh, right back down with a headlock. Because even, even though it's a rest hold, it looks like it's a consequence of the match. And Brett gets leveled with a chop, sells it like death. The audience gasps. It's so hard. Perfect, Perfect's hair is at the weird length where it starts, like when he starts to sweat and get hot, it looks like a perm. Once again, though, great selling from Perfect on Brett's offense, like a kick to the face, close on over the top rope, and Perfect decides to walk away. So Brett chases him down, rips up his singlet, and I always wondered if Brett or anybody else this happens to, do they... Do they pay Kurt Hedding for that singlet after? Brett aggressively uh, has Perfect in the corner. And when the ref gets in, Hedding hits an, an awesome, like, cheap punch to the face. It's insane to me, too, that Bill Alfonso, like, carved out a great little career uh, aping this fucking coach. Brett gets shoved off the apron into the barricade, but he's caught by some dude. And Gorilla's like, that's an international photographer. And I cannot stress how... Great a job Brett and Perfect are doing at selling the severity of, Brett, of Perfect's punches. Even on a roll-up that perfectly barely escapes, Perfect gets up, gets one punch, and Brett doubles down. It looks devastating. Piper rightfully calls out Perfect's awful hair, which I'm good for. Hitman's in trouble. All from one punch earlier. Sure, there's been a drop kick and a neck snap, but it all turned around by that, that sucker punch. Coach has done nothing except blow his whistle and wear gear that says coach on it. And it's in the same font as the Craig T. Nelson show. I don't like it. Neat spot, though. Both guys fall over the top rope and tumble to the apron. Now Perfect is bringing uh, slaps and trash talk. And a sleeper. Bobby wants Stu and Helen to get the jammies out. Brett tries to fight out of a crucifix, but it's the second time he's done it in the match. Like he's got like he tries to crucifix Perfect, so Perfect just jumps back, and cr I like it. I like that he learned from what happened earlier. Perfect Plex, Bret Hart kicks out. Now again, he's the only one who's given that honor, but I know from this project alone, I've seen Hogan, Warrior, and Piper all do it, all on TV. Bret takes control, super close to on Perfect after a suplex. Bret really upping the urgency. He's trying to win the match. He's doing the five moves of doom before it's even a thing. And perfect selling is incredible. Like, he's really on the ropes. If his back was fucked, it doesn't show at all. Coach then gets punched off the apron. And he somehow manages to do, like, a slow motion fall. I've never seen it before or since. You know, I take back everything I said about this dude. And Bobby is just outraged. He hit a man with glasses. Brett then is um, trying to get in the ring. And perfect kicks the ropes, which hits Brett's penis. Perfect is now just stomping him in the dick. Um, he tries to do a leg drop between Brett's legs. Brett grabs it, turns it into a sharpshooter. Really quick submission, so I guess he was hurt. What a match.
right? I don't know what it's thinking. Last time I saw it and rated it, I had it three and a half. This is a clear four for me. Brett then uh, strips perfect and keeps the singlet as a trophy to go with the Intercontinental title win. And Piper then says, we got a new champion. Whatever, you crazy fuck. Mr. Perfect's number one match. King of the Ring, 1993. Mr. Hughes, no. Against Bret Hart. A big shock. Perfect's two best matches are with Bret Hart. I love how both guys come to the ring determined. This was, after all, the match that Bret wanted. He, we wanted the wrestler, the wrestling, the wrestling moves. Bret selling a hand injury from earlier with Razor. Uh, Bret also strangely checks in on his nipple early in the match. I guess maybe it was going to fall off. Does he have a nipple for each of his kids? Or is that just the hearts on his tights? I know for sure all the pink dots on his upper body are for all the times he cheated on that Saint Julie. Macho's like, this is going to be a classy match. The body slam and kick to the other face, they, they trade that. One of the prettiest spots in wrestling is Bret Hart taking Perfect to the mat with a headlock. I love it. It's so, he flips him over his hip, like it's like almost like a judo toss, but he holds on. It's so smooth and still looks devastating. They're running through all the regular spots. Now, normally I'd be upset for them not changing it, but it looks so good, it's kind of no biggie. Perfect hits Brett with a knee to the gut. Uh, this elicits big boos from the crowd. Like, big boos. This prompts Macho to talk about uh, Perfect's salty past. Brett goes to the outside, and a nice touch, he holds the... Uh, like, Brett's outside and Perfect's in the ring, so a nice touch, he holds the ropes for Brett to come back in. But then he kicks him while he's off balance. Great stuff. Now, Perfect starts pounding away. He's way more aggressive than he usually is. It's face versus face, but Perfect is completely slid into the heel roll. Perfect then sends Brett off the apron to the security rail, but this time, there's no international photographer to catch him. Instead, it's some plastic crates. And I think that's kind of rude, right? Imagine the poor cat trying to enjoy the inside of that crate. Brett keeps kicking out. Perfect ups the urgency, and he starts getting even more aggressive. And I love that the aggression is a reaction to the consequence of the match. Perfect crawls to the ropes, but Brett catches him with a quick kick, which of course makes him flip Brett over. Uh, Brett then puts him in a figure four. And this is a move Perfect does not like being in because he always goes nuts in it, which is the right selling. It looks like he's in agony. He panics to get out of it. It's like he cares about the business. Brett continues to work the leg. Kurt continues the great selling. Perfect wraps his hands around Brett's hair and does the old Judy Martin toss across the ring. Perfect absolutely wrenching the sleeper in. It looks like he was trying to kill him, right? Um, massive European uppercut to Perfect. Then Brett throws him across the ring for the traditional crotch post <laughs> shot. Brett is very upset he didn't get a three count with a Russian side Russian leg sweep, which is, you know, surprising because he's never pinned Perfect or anyone else uh, in 2,000 matches with it. Perfect is so good, though, at taking offense, especially Brett's stuff, because Brett's stuff is, is snug. He's selling it like the plague and punctuating it all with very close near falls. Great spot where Brett goes for the sharpshooter, but Perfect grabs the hurt fingers from the previous match and then stomps the hurt fingers. Really nice touch. Uh, I love it. Then Perfect goes to the Perfect Plex, and I love that Brett keeps stretching his leg back so uh, Kurt can't grab it. They suplex each other to the floor. Savage says it could be a double countout and Bam Bam can win King of the Ring. That would kind of suck. It looked devastating though because it looked like they were both hurt. They both come face to face hurt. Perfect sneaks in a small package, but Brett turns it over for the three count. So kind of 
the opposite of the Tito Santana match, but a hell of a match. Watching these back-to-back, you really see all the repeated spots, but it doesn't matter because they're really great. Uh, All the same, four and a quarter. Uh, I love that King of the Ring 93 has Perfect's worst and best matches of his career. And uh, it's a career match from Bret Hart too. Really solid stuff. So I think there's some great matches here. His peak is very, very good. I just want more. Next category, promos. I'm not really sure what the general consensus is on Mr. Perfect as a promo. I always thought he was competent enough. Let's just give it a listen and uh, let's see what we think. It takes a special kind of person to be in the World Wrestling Federation. It takes a special kind of athlete. And I know one man who is the greatest athlete. And this man is not only the greatest athlete in the World Wrestling Federation, but a man who can go up on a diving board and do double backflips at 260 pounds. I'm talking about a man that's got a winning record longer than any other man in the World Wrestling Federation and still counting. I'm talking about Mr. Perfect. And it's right now is the time for the whole World Wrestling Federation to take a good hard look because I am what I say I am. And I am absolutely perfect. Please, please, please uh, type Mr. Perfect promo into YouTube and watch the first one that comes up, which is what you just heard. I just I want you to have the visual of the genius busting a nut behind Perfect and punctuating all his sentences for him. <gasps> so good. Look, I don't think I need to say very much on this one. If you follow the series, you know. It's one note for 45 seconds. It doesn't get old because it's 45 seconds. But if this were extended by, say, even a minute, we'd hate it. It's just screaming. I am this. I am that. I am this. I am that. It's fine, right? Um, But it doesn't fit with what he's saying. Why is he screaming, I am perfect? Because at this point, he's still undefeated. Like, if he's perfect, he shouldn't need to boast about it, right? You can see, too, that the entire promo is a big list. I did this. I did that. I did the other thing. It's his accomplishments, who he is, etc. But there's no nuance uh, given to each part of the list. Nothing has value. And he doesn't care. Like, it's like he doesn't care. He's not putting... Maybe it was just a different time where guys would just scream things. But, like, like my, my, my thesis is always that theater... Wrestling is theater. And you look at Jake Roberts, he's got 30 seconds. There's all kinds of levels, all kinds of nuance. Here he's just, I'm going to say my words, and my words are going to be this, and I'm articulate, so I'm like better than most of the guys. I listened to a ton of perfect promos. I settled on this one. And honestly, they're all the same. It's it's bark, 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 bark. Nobody beats Mr. Perfect. So this is what you're dealing with. But look, here's some evidence. <laughs> that he struggled as a face. Let's listen to this one. Madison Square Garden, Ric Flair versus Mr. Perfect. Well, Flair, there won't be anybody holding you back like they were when I was up with Gene Okerlund trying to do an interview and you kept trying to get up there. It's just going to be me and you. You're going to get to me, or should I say, I'm going to get to you. And brain dead, Bobby Heenan, you're going to be out on the outside of the ring looking in. I don't think you're as smart as you think you are, Heenan. For the simple reason, if you were smart and if you were the brain, you'd be in my corner. You want to stick by Ric Flair's side, you're going to stick by a loser. Because you and everybody else knows it's a simple fact. Nobody beats Mr. Perfect. Nobody. I wish you could see the goofy smile on his face. It's enraging. 
Check out the tone change, though, when he says his name, Mr. Perfect. He kind of yucks it up. And <laughs> I, think, I, I think I mentioned it above. It feels like this is someone who's trying very hard to be cool. I'm not sure what he's going for here. I mean, he's talking about the, there won't be anybody holding you back up. Uh, uh, like when Eyes was up with Gene Okerlund trying to do an interview and Hughes was trying to get up there. There's no Eyes and Hughes. I don't want to hear these things. He's doing some sort of strange pantomime too with his hand, but you can hear it in his voice. See, okay, so we've talked about intentions. We've talked about lists. We've talked about variants. Let's talk about gestures uh, very quickly, even though you can't see them. But I think it's it's clear that like his gestures, um, it's really important as, as an actor or a wrestler or whatever to connect your voice to what your body is doing. Here, because he's uncomfortable, I think he's just uncomfortable in the role of a face. He's uncomfortable, so he doesn't know what he's doing, what, what to do with his hands. It's if you ever watch Thirty Rock, it's like when Jack Donahue's got the two mugs in his hands, and he kind of does it perfect here. Does kind of a gesture that looks like he's like a traveling call in basketball, but it has nothing to do with what he's saying, so it comes out false. So the gesture's false. So what's coming out of the voice is also going to be false. If you want to see someone. Like if you want to see someone cutting a promo that isn't connected, like if you're, if you're watching, like I don't understand why I'm I'm not buying it. Look at the gestures. When we talk, we actually unconsciously connect our gestures to our words, right? Like as I was saying that, I, I'm not even doing it on purpose, but like my hands are kind of coming together and going apart because I'm talking about connecting, right? There's a gesture that goes with connecting. There's slight variations, but each gesture we make um, when we are speaking at least when we're speaking truthfully, has a specific meaning. Like, And if you see a guy, and tons of wrestlers do it, doing the same gesture, imagine the hand coming beside Luger. Lex Luger's a great example of this. You watch his promos, he's got his hand beside his head, and every, punctu- every punctuation he's moving his hand. You're, they're not connected in that moment. The, 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 the most common gestures you'll always see in, in bad acting or bad theater or bad... Um, or bad wrestling, I guess, promos, is imagine where Bret Hart's arms are for his like pr- promo. People put their hands out there all the time when they talk. That's called herding sheep. Or the other thing is when they put their hands together, which is like, please buy my flowers. It just doesn't work. Also, back to the promo. There, there's a, there's a, there is contrast in this one. When he goes, now you're going to get me. Nope, I'm going to get you. But contrast, you contrast that now with the intensity of the previous promo. It's like as a baby face, he decided he couldn't be aggressive anymore. Instead, he had to be goofy. Also catch to how mid-promo he forgets what he's talking about. He starts on this weird nonsense. Again, if he knew what he was saying, this wouldn't happen. He starts on this nonsensical tangent about Heenan being on the outside of the ring. I I don't know why he's talking about this, but he is. Then he says, "I uh, I don't think you're as smart as you think you are. Heenan. There's a, that pregnant pause. Like, who are you trying to convince, pal? Is it you or us? Like, you didn't know what you were saying right there. He then states, too, that if the brain were smart, he'd be in his corner. And this feels counterproductive to everything that's happened between the two of them at this point. He should be pushing hard that he never needed Heenan. Instead, he goes, Let, let's all that go, all that story go, to kind of like a lame dig at Bobby not being smart. He then closes with the line, Nobody beats Mr. Perfect. Nobody. 
don't know if you heard I said it, but it's a cardinal mistake of delivering the the word nobody the exact same tone. When you repeat, you repeat for emphasis, but there's no emphasis given to that final nobody. It's a lie. Also, everybody beats Mr. Perfect. Everybody. So I think for promos, Mr. Perfect is articulate and he can get a good point across quickly, but not as a face. I was going to go five, but I think his face promo is, and his face mannerisms and character are bad enough that I'm going to knock it. So I'm going to go four out of 10 for the whole package. Articulate is just adequate, which I know in wrestling is sometimes a, a good thing, right? But the face promo and many more like it, you got to bump it down. It is really true with perfect. Like once you've heard one promo, you've kind of heard them all. Next category is importance. The more I think about this project, the more I realize that although I judge 10 separate categories, there's really five that are about the wrestler himself or herself and how, and then five about how they were used. So five categories that the wrestler, in this case, Mr. Perfect, has a direct influence over and five that are in the control of Vince McMahon. So I, so far, Perfect is scoring pretty well on the wrestler-driven categories. Face, heel work, uh, work in the matches, match quality, promo didn't do too well, but whatever. And now we're entering the, the company-oriented categories. So like narrative is a company, he did well on that. Important still feels like a bump in the road. And this is going to hurt to say because I think you could take Mr. Perfect right out of history and nothing really changes. I mean, could Rick Rude not have done the exact same job? Could Rick Martel or, or any other Rick Rod Ravishad have also stepped in and played the role of a top tier or mid-card heel? And I'm not saying they could have been Mr. Perfect. I think it took Kurt Henning to be Mr. Perfect. Like imagine how many takes it would take poor Haku to do those jump shots. And no way the country club would have allowed him to play with bare feet. And then what do you have? 15 dead country club staffers. No thank you. No one wants that. But what I mean is that nearly any big mid-card heel could have done what Perfect did in the late 1980s. Like maybe Greg Valentine could have done it and then he'd be as good as Dolph Ziggler. The other thing, too, is that Perfect was never really a guy who I think made other important guys. I know Bret Hart would be an example of a guy he put over. I'm not sure that's the same as making a dude. It's not like they had a major storyline going into the match. The contrast is the Honky Tonk Man feuding with Randy Savage. I think Honky was instrumental in, keep, in, Savage, in keeping Savage a strong face. They fought for months, and by the time Savage was done with Honky... Macho was in a position to be the face of the company and a world champion. But I think the months of feuding with the nuclear heat honky helped that. Brett kind of just fought perfect and beat him. Brett was ready. Uh, regardless, it, it probably could have been the barbarian and he still would have ended up in the same position, albeit with worse matches and more sex scratches. So while I want to say Mr. Perfect, one of my favorite guys of all time, was, is important to my personal fandom... Yeah, I don't think much changes if you take him out. I think we're also having a different conversation if Perfect had a collection of great matches in his back pocket. But as we've seen, we don't really have those either. And I don't know. Maybe he wasn't at the right place at the right time. Like, it's a timeless character, obviously. And it's the only time he could have been involved in a feud uh, and be involved with Hulk Hogan. I mean, the mini feud with Hogan is probably more high-profile... 
than anything else he'd achieve in his career. So for him and the money he earned, this is no doubt the right time, right place. For the fans, uh, though, his skill might have been better used elsewhere. I mean, I can't help but think that a prime Mr. Perfect as a heel would have thrived in the new generation era. I know I could reduce almost anyone to like, well, I wish he was champion instead of Yokozuna, but Perfect fits the bill. King Perfect has a much better ring than King Mabel. And look, he would have looked great in purple. Then again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe what made Perfect stand out was that he was this athletic dude working in the undercard beneath guys like Earthquake. Perfect, honestly, this is the most conflicted that I've been throughout this project. It's also safe to say that Perfect overachieved for a guy his size in the Hogan era. I know he's not small, but like when you look at Hogan's opponents during this period, he's sandwiched in between Zeus and Earthquake, right? Yet he's still a viable threat to Hulkamania. If anything knocks his case, it's getting hurt in 1991. Then again, 91 was not lacking for top heels. He would have been lost in the shuffle behind Flair, Jake, Undertaker. He helped every show he was on, though. Of the 14 pay-per-view appearance he has, he's the best match on the throw three times. So like a fifth of the time. Every card he's helping. And he never once had the worst match on a given show. And I feel it perfect. So hard with Mr. Perfect. Because... He almost washes too when it's like whether he's good or bad for business. I mean, yeah, it's always great to have a great worker with his penis popping out. Clearly, he helps every time he's out there. But if he could be replaced by somebody else, how heavy can his impact truly be? He didn't hurt the business, but I don't I don't know if he truly helped it either. Beating him didn't launch guys like Mr. Kerry Von Erich or, or a mashed up Brutus Beefcake in his face into the stratosphere. And then guys beat him without a meaningful bump. And I know we look at him as a long-term intercontinental champion. And look, compared to like the spring of 99, this is like a Bruno-esque run. But it only, like it only times out to about a 10-month reign. Compare that to Randy Savage, who was like over a year. Uh, 16 months for the Honk Tonk Man. 14 months for the Ultimate Warrior. Like a step behind. So I'm going to go 4 on 10 for importance. Like I said, doesn't hurt doesn't necessarily help presentation now this was a category i probably gave the most thought about because on the surface it seems like he's presented well always on tv intercontinental champion feud with top guys sort of he's one of the most memorable guys of the era so the conclusion i came to is a bit strange i think the company nearly completely failed in the presentation of the character. There's good though. Let's deal with the vignettes. These were awesome. All the sports stuff uh, spot on. They made him seem like a guy who was completely unbeatable. I love the basketball shots, the home runs, <laughs> the self-touchdown. And getting the athletes too, like Madano and, and Boggs. I know he's friends with Boggs, but you know, this is a stroke of genius because they're, they're putting him over, right? And it made him seem like a consistent threat. So what happened? Well, what happened was... He never fucking won. Yes, he beats guys like the Blue Blazer, Coco Beware, Red Rooster. But these are jobbers to the stars. He never beats anyone clean, ever. And I know he's a heel. But he's Mr. Perfect. He's not the goddamn honky-tonk man. Let's go through his big match career, all right? Survivor Series 88, match I love. He survives with Dino Bravo. He pins Jake the Snake. 
But it's only after Andre the Giant is like murdered Jake by choking him down. He doesn't do anything. He just comes in and pins him. WrestleMania 5 beats the Blue Blazer. Quick match. SummerSlam 89 beats the Red Rooster. Quick match. Saturday Night's Main Event, October 89, beats the Red Rooster. Survivor Series 89, sole survivor for Rude's Brood, but he beats Butch and Jimmy Snooker. Royal Rumble 1990, comes in at 30, gets eliminated almost immediately. Saturday Night's Main Event, February 1990, with the genius, loses to Hogan and the Warrior. WrestleMania 6, pinned by Beefcake. SummerSlam, not, excuse me, it's not SummerSlam. Saturday Night's Main Event, April 1990, pinned by Hogan. Intercontinental Title Tournament, has to cheat to beat Snuka, gets a bye to the finals, has to cheat to beat Tito. Saturday Night's Main Event, July 90, beats Tito. SummerSlam 90, gets pinned by the Tornado. Survivor Series 90, gets pinned by the Ultimate Warrior. He beats Tornado for the Intercontinental Belt with DiBiase cheating. Royal Rumble 91 gets tossed quickly. WrestleMania 7 loses to the Big Boss Man. Saturday Night's Main Event, April 90, wins a jobber-filled Battle Royal. SummerSlam 91 loses to Bret Hart. Survivor Series 92 wins by DQ. Royal Rumble 93 eliminates Flair, but then gets tossed. Retires Flair on Raw, fair. WrestleMania 9 loses to Luger. King of the Ring beats Mr. Hughes by DQ only, then loses to Bret. SummerSlam 93 loses to Michaels by countout. The only person of note he was actually able to pin during his entire run was Ric Flair, who was leaving the promotion. He never got to pin anyone except the jobbers. Even in most of the MSG stuff I watch, because I watch like a Piper match, a Hogan match, whatever. Unless it's Coco, Tito, Rooster, or Snuka, he's not pinning them. Maybe, just maybe, he'd win by DQ or Countout. And I get it. I do. He's a heel. It's the era. He can't win all the time. But he's a heel called Mr. Perfect, whose gimmick is that he never loses. But it also wasn't played as though he was a fraud. Right? If he was calling himself Mr. Perfect and he never lost, the announcers are like, well, you know, this guy has blemishes. That's fine. That would make sense. The announcers never said that, though. They treated them as though he was perfect. So it was completely non congruous to the person we're seeing on screen. They told us he was perfect, but never let him win. Now, he was such a good performer that it masked all this, right? But he can't pin Brutus Beefcake. He can't beat Snooka clean in a tournament. He can't beat Mr. Hughes. It, I'm shocked. I'm shocking. It's even more shocking that as a face, he won less than he did when he was a heel. That face run is, is atrocious from a KFA point of view. Loss after loss. Like, no wonder he looked like he hated it. His music, though, was awesome. It just felt so, listen to it, it feels so important. I believe the song is called Exodus, uh, which is ballsy, considering uh, he is not uh, an Israelite of any sort. The strong timpani sounds uh, give him the air of invincibility. He's strutting down to the ring to it, tossing a towel, spitting gum into the crowd. And yes, I know that the hand swat was cool, but he's essentially throwing chewed gum into a crowd of people. In any other situation, this is completely unacceptable. And I like that the song had a great climax. It goes really high, right? Uh, and they always timed it perfectly as he was entering the ring. Now, if the song went too long, it became quiet very fast. But fuck it. It was so good. Uh, they never changed it. They didn't need to. Healer face, it worked. And uh, 
It's still one of the classic enduring songs of the era. I could rate his championship reigns. He's got two. I struggle to rate them though because one is short but has high profile defenses. The other is longer. I guess I'd go with his first one second, like as not as good. I mean, he wins the tournament, then drops the belt to the tornado right away. But he's got the match with Santana in there at least. And then he wins in December 90 and holds it to August 91. But, you know, he's winning by DQ. He's passing the torch. It's, I don't know. I guess Henning was like a superstars champion. He'd beat jobbers. Um, he might have been the biggest star you saw in a given week. And maybe that, that's why he seems more important than he was. There's probably a good case to be made, though, that he could have won the 93 Rumble and main evented against Bret Hart. I think that would have been cool. And that that would have extended their rivalry. Like, Bret got the better of him at SummerSlam. Maybe he beats Bret at WrestleMania 9. You could still send Luger against Perfect SummerSlam. I wonder, too, if he doesn't get hurt in 91 and they don't get Flair, does he get the run that Flair got in 92? Or are they all in on Sid Justice? I mean, it's probably Sid, right? But I could totally see Perfect winning the 92 Rumble and having a great match with Randy Savage at 8. Let's rank his gear. Because I've talked about his gear, but it's pretty cool. Uh, I've, I've, I've counted seven looks. Uh, let's go. The worst one, number seven. Uh, referee shirt, but also referee pants. Now, it's been nearly 30 years since 1994, and I still... I still don't know who told him to wear those striped referee pants. I mean, where would one even find such pants? Did he not get the memo about how guest refs are supposed to look less like referees? Like Jesse Ventura wore that weird frilly shirt and a bandana. Fuck, Piper showed up later in the same night wearing jeans and a t-shirt. No, 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 no. Perfect was going to dress more like a referee than the actual referees themselves. The referees didn't even wear striped shirts at this point. Fine, Perfect wanted to wear a striped shirt. But striped fucking pants? It might have been the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Number six, underoos. I just think it made him look small. I didn't mind the blue color, but he didn't look perfect. He looked like a guy who was about to get his ass kicked. Like, he would have never fought Hogan wearing those. Hogan's probably like, you better put something else on, brother. Uh, number five, Survivor Series 1992, black singlet with sequins. Um, with the Mr. Perfect name on it. I love the Mr. Perfect writing on the back of his jackets when he was Ric Flair's executive consultant. It looked classy and shiny. It did not work when he shuffled it down to the tramp stamp position on his tights. It's too many words to put on your ass, okay? It's not like the dude's Mabel. He's Mr. Perfect. And sequins shouldn't be plastered across an ass. I mean, how's that guy going to sit down? It's going to be very uncomfortable. Number four. Black singlet with fluo green, pink, and uh, green on the back. Or sometimes there's blue on the back, too. It just, it just looked too much like a pair of bicycle shorts my mother had. No, thank you. Number three, orange singlet, back on the black. I love it. But this is when you can really see the seep, uh, the, excuse me, the sweat seep through. If I saw this man in this singlet sweating, looking pissed off, coming towards me at night, I'm probably losing my innocence. Number two, blue singlet, back on the black. Back on the black, back on the black. Black on the back. Fuck, it's too many act sounds. I think it just looks slicked. I hate that Bret Hart ruined it. And I think his best look is the yellow singlet with the black on the back. Felt like the future version of Hulk Hogan in this. Hogan's yellow was like dull. Perfect's was vibrant. They're all small variations. Whatever, you put them in whatever order you want. Perfect 2 was never going to get a fair shake in terms of merchandise being a heel. Um, 
They did go all in on him early with a light blue shirt with the cursive Mr. Perfect written across the front. I would have bought that. I think it was quick and to the point. Later, uh, when he's a face in 93, they produced this red shirt with the name Mr. Perfect in block letters and his face is in it. I didn't really like that one. I like the classic one. I always really liked the busts that adorned the video walls during his promos. Like they presented him as like a Caesar type character. I never got the impression Henning was Greek, uh, but I'm sure Hercules was like fuming for 45 minutes on the phone every night to Paul Roma. Look, I'm the Greek, not, not Kurt Henning. Perfect graced the cover of the WF magazine a few times, chuckling and smiling in 1993. He looked puffy too. Uh, but his original one, looking in his orange singlet in 90, man, arms crossed, looking pissed off, looked like a world beater. Perfect was like just late too for like a spiffy LJN figure. Uh, by this time, they weren't making guys functional to wrestle with, like Rude had his hands in his pants, DiBiase is in his suit and his hands are stuffed with money. I can't only imagine what they're due to Perfect. His, his fingers will probably be pointing, maybe he'll have the towel, who knows. Probably blue singlet, uh, one hand up like Greg Valentine. Maybe you chew his face and there's blue underneath. I don't know. Perfect has given two Hasbro figures to launch his career. Uh, one in yellow and the more rare version of the blue singlet. They both had an arm that was like looked like it was about to do a bushwhacker walk. This was obviously called Perfect Plex Action or some bullshit on the package. But you knew that you could just march him right in there between Luke and Butch. Jax, when they had the line, produced a yellow and orange variants. Looked pretty decent. They also produced a Survivor Series 92 look. <laughs> I think the crown jewel, though, of Mr. Perfect Jax is the three-pack with Bobby and Flair. The only figure available where we get Kurt in his role as executive consultant. Mattel, uh, to date, has produced three elite figures. The most recent being, again, the Survivor Series 92. I don't know why everybody's doing this one. But I like the blue singlet as part of the original Legends line in the, original two, in the early 2010s. Uh, but the one on my shelf is the orange singlet that came with the Heenan Family four-pack. All this to say... He's been really well represented in figures, and I like it. I was going to say something about cards. Nobody sent me anything. So I'm going to go four for presentation. Uh, it's way worse than I would have thought. Because, But I like the vignettes, the music, all that. But then he's presented like he always loses. Or he barely wins, or he cheats. He's getting knocked around a bit here. Feuds is next. I don't think there's a ton of meat on this bone either. I think the beginning of his run, he was just kind of an athletic guy fighting other athletic guys. His first feud of note seems to be against Hulk Hogan in, the, in 1990. He becomes Hogan's Challenger of the Month in January and has a couple of months on top. He gets beat up a lot, but at the very least, he's, he gets the best of Hulkster on like one episode of Sunday's main event. It's not even in a match that he's involved in, but whatever. I think his next feud is when he gets pulled into the Heenan family. Uh, the Heenan family making fun of the big boss man. I mean making fun of the mother he didn't start it he seems far from it but he had to feel the brunt of it when rick rude left the promotion so it's not even a real feud it's like a feud by proxy i wonder i wonder if his feuds suffer because plans kept changing for him like he was gonna feud with brutus beefcake but then fate and a woman's knees intervened the match with tornado was thrown together and even when tornado was intercontinental champion perfect spends much of his time fighting the warrior i think we can say with certainty or at least i can that his best feud is with Ric Flair. It has a clear beginning, middle, and end. He starts with a friend. Uh, he's a supporter. Then he gets agitated and fights against Flair. Fights him at a major pay-per-view. Eliminates him from the Royal Rumble. And then sends him packing from the promotion. Hell, even Lex Luger 
coming in as a proxy to the Flair feud. Speaking of Luger, <laughs> there's kind of a slow simmering feud between he and Perfect. And it lasts the better part of a year if you actually connect it together. I mean, Luger comes in, gets fellatioed by Heenan, and knocks Perfect the fuck out at WrestleMania 9. Perfect was rearing to go for revenge, but then America stepped in. And Perfect's not going to fight America. So we took a back seat, only to come back and fuck Luger at WrestleMania 10. Look, I'm not seeing a lot here. To score higher for me in the feuds, there's got to be some blood feuds. We kind of get it with Flair, kind of. So I'll go 5 out of 10. Final category, moments. Well, the undefeated streak was special. I just wish it had been against some stronger opponents and its end had meant more. I mean, it's not his fault, but it would have been a nice springboard. Beefcake ending that streak was a crazy moment live. The people lost it. And as much as I might say it's Beefcake's moment, it's built on the back of Perfect's hard work. Being a survivor at two separate Survivor Series, especially in a row, made him kind of like Randy Orton before Randy Orton was a thing. And despite all the cheating, big moments to win the Intercontinental twice. Then there's all the stuff with Flair and Heenan. Uh, like he's one of the stars of the WrestleMania 8 match uh, between Ric Flair and Randy Savage, which is surprising because he's not a competitor, but he's in the ring nearly as much as they are. His laughter and excitement over the prospect of getting the Elizabeth layout on the big screen, awesome. But don't sleep on how great that episode of Primetime is when Perfect is tempted by Savage. It's a fantastic build, and when Perfect finally accepts, thrilling. He sends Flair packing, that's huge. I also dig the little moment when he tosses Flair from the rumble. Like, it looks like it generally meant a lot to him. His return in 94 was great, until it wasn't. I blame the pants. 96 comeback was fun, while it lasted for two weeks. The less said about his 2002 run, the better, I suppose. Because it's not like it was bad. Uh, but obviously, they didn't want to use him in any sort of serious way. I love the return at the Rumble. The people are into him. Uh, and at the moment where he's kind of tied up in the ropes, he's got one hand free and still manages to do the gum spit and whack. Shot for the ages. So, so smooth. I mean, his single worst moment, he's probably getting fired for nearly killing everyone in the company. I don't know why he had to try and fight Brock Lesnar, but he did. And it cost him and it cost him the best case scenario, which was only his job. Single best moment. I love the 2002 Rumble stuff. But I'm going to go with the January 1990 episode of Saturday Night's Main Event. After the genius shocked the world and beat Hulk Hogan by count out, Perfect steals the belt. Backstage, he places it on the ground, smashed it with a hammer. And I remember at the time thinking, this is one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Looking back... He was never more legitimate, and this is the closest he came to ever being a true bona fide main eventer in the WWF. He was always good. Rarely great. Five out of ten for moments. Going into this, I was expecting Perfect to score high. And now he's the lowest of everyone we've done. As it stands right now, Jake, number one, 76.35 points. Batista, 63.208. Razor Ramon, 62.016. Diesel, 61.63. Trish, 59. Honky Tonk Man, 56.648. And Mr. Perfect, 53.25. So seven out of seven. But a full three points behind sixth. I'm shocked that my former favorite wrestler would score so low in this contest. I'm the one. I'm the only one you need to impress in this trying to be objective but you know how that works you can't really it's art 
but it's lost on presentation, importance, and face work. Maybe if he'd been better at being a good guy, they would have pushed him as a main event star. Then as a consequence, everything else would have risen. I don't want to say he shit the bed as a face. He's not the honky-tonk man. But he was just never comfortable. And as a result, I think his whole career suffered. For better or worse, the WWF, especially during Perfect's tenure, was a babyface promotion. The only way to have a collection of incredible moments was to be a top face like Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage. Or in the absence of that, you had to be someone who wrung the most out of every opportunity they were given, like, say, a Jake Roberts. See, Jake was so good at everything that any angle he was in felt personal and felt like he was like 10,000% committed to it. That wasn't the case for Perfect. He had all the tools in the toolbox to be a great. But when opportunity knocked, he didn't always put them to use. See, for every match with Brett, there's a match with Hogan. Those matches, rather than play to his strength like sp and, and speed, he sits around in headlocks for most of it. How can Randy Savage get a three and a half star match at a Brutus Beefcake on a random Saturday Night's main event? And yet on the biggest stage, during Beefcake's biggest moment, with Perfect undefeated, he can't even get him to three stars. More than anything, this seems to be the case of a good career, and I've said it a few times, it's a good career with not enough great. Compare him to Trish Stratus, it feels weird. But it's crazy, Trish has higher highs. Trish has stronger character moments. Trish is also there way longer and seems to have more impact on the promotion. Compare to Honky, who is clearly not as good a wrestler as Henning. But he took that 1987 run and made it into one of the most memorable in company history. Perfect had the tools to have that same run and make it better, and he didn't. But maybe it's not his fault. For me, Mr. Perfect will still be my, one of my all-time favorite guys, regardless of the score. His fluorescent uniforms, his awesome-looking Perfect Plex arrived at exactly the right time for my 10-year-old self. I had this big stuffed bunny for whatever reason and had arms and legs, like long human arms and legs. Like not a Bugs Bunny situation, but like the same freakish body type. And I would kick the shit out of this bunny every day and I had these belts I made out of paper. And I, you know, I had my little fantasy league with myself. But I was most satisfied when I'd hooked that leg, bridge, and put that rodent down for the three count with the perfect flex. Because perfect was just so cool for me at that time. I love the guy couldn't be beat. The guy could do it all. It didn't matter to me then that he didn't win or was awkward as fuck. I just loved the dude who would dropkick you in the face and tell you how perfect he was. Now you're going to see a perfect Plex. He grabbed me by my 10-year-old face, both ears, and screamed, I'm Mr. Perfect! And I stared longingly into his eyes and committed my love for him in in that journey. And Miss Robine can fuck herself if she thinks that's not legitimate. Forget the scores. Mr. Perfect was an original and a major component of my family. Next time on The Wrestler That Was, we tackle a dude with two runs in the company. One is loved, the other's maligned. But I don't think they're as far away as we think. It is time See you then. For you to put up or shut up. Will you be the tag team partner of the Macho Man Randy Savage at Survivor Series? Yes or no? I'll handle this right now. Get your hand out hey, from in boy. front of my face. You're not making the right decisions. You're listening to Savage. They've got you all turned around. Yeah. Just listen to me. It's time someone took, takes charge here, and I'm going to do it.
People in life have to take orders. I take orders from Flair. You're going to take orders from me and Flair. Flair wants you to walk behind him in his shadow. You do it whoa, and say, yes, sir. Whoa, keep your mouth shut. Man, I'll whoa. do the same thing. He is not wrestling anybody. He is not getting in the ring and Survivor Series. Tell you something, Heenan. I am sick and tired of everybody making decisions for me. Savage, you want an answer? I'll give you an answer. I accept. As you are left. I said, I accept. I'm talking. Don't you hear me? Don't you hear me? I'm sorry. Let me tell you something right now, Heenan. You don't put your hands on me. Survivor Series, I'm going to be in the corner of the Macho Man Randy Savage. I accept it, Savage. And Bobby Heenan, I'm going to tell you, you put your hands on the wrong person. You just got done putting your hands on Mr. Perfect. You don't touch Mr. Perfect. I know, I know, I know. You've been holding me back all these years. You've been putting me on the back burner. Ric Flair has been walking in my shadow. Ric Flair wants to fill my shoes. Look what they've done to us. Look at they tore us apart. I didn't mean to hit you. God knows I'd never do you that. Hit me. Get oh, you ever do that. Off of me. I'll get down on my knees. I'll get down on one knee and tell you something. Please, we'll never do it again. I'll never do anything wrong. I promise you. I'll buy you a car. I'll get you a boat. I'll give you double the money you could have made. I'll get on both knees perfect. Please don't leave us. What a Please terrible don't, don't excuse do that. for Please. a man. Please don't oh, do that. Please don't. That? No, no, no. Oh, oh, take that what do you think about that, Ric Flair? What do you think about this wet weasel? Macho Man Randy Savage, I'm back, and I'm back in the Survivor Series as your partner, believe it or not.